Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week, Lauren and Justin find out about some animals with some unusual talents. The smell of popcorn is something we all associate with good times, but for a certain type of animal, it means a very, very different thing. Plus, we find out about how tiny butterflies are able to travel huge amounts of distance for spring break from Canada and the US all the way to Mexico. So, Lauren, you like partying, right? Yeah, okay. I have been known to party cat sometimes. All right, now, at a big party, or maybe going out with some friends, or maybe just going to chill out at a movie, what's one of your favourite things to eat? Ice cream. Well, that's always good, but what about something warm, something hot? Are you talking about popcorn? Well, the sweet, buttery smell of popcorn may in fact be related to this week's news story. Okay. How's this related to this week's news story? Have we decided on a new flavour of popcorn? Well, yes, we have. And it is related to something found from a shaggy-haired creature deep in Southeast Asia. Okay, I think I know the one you're talking about. Are you by any chance talking about the bear cat? Well, I thought you were a party cat, Laura, not a bear cat. <laughs> yes, yes, the Bin Turong, which has been described as something that is has lots in common with what you find inside movie theatres, party places, or any other time there's a good time going on. In fact, this tiny little boar of fur and claws that looks something like a cross between an otter and a badger basically smells... Like hot buttered popcorn. No, I admit, I almost hadn't heard of like a bear cat or a binturong yeah. before this point. Because it, it doesn't seem like a common animal because it's from Southeast Asia. Yep. Um, but what I do love is the fact that because they smell so strongly of popcorn that um, zookeepers have actually started naming each of their... Bear cats after different popcorn brands and flavors. This is ridiculous. Like as a concept, right? One of the reasons why popcorn smells good is because it's the melting of the butter. Like mm-hmm. the corn, the corn itself burning and popping. That's what we do when we pop corn. We like literally burn the corn kernels until they explode. Mm-hmm. Um, that smells good. And then you add hot butter on it, and it smells even better. But that's because it's like a cooking process. Animals shouldn't smell like something being cooked when they're still alive. <laughs> I mean, like, just to get to cook popcorn, you have to put the temperatures pretty high. Is, yeah. <laughs> does that just mean the bear cat is naturally, like, high temperature? Well, that's what scientists were trying to figure out. And interestingly, this has been research done um, based out of a Carolina tiger rescue research group in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, and published in The Science of Nature, or if you want to speak German, Naturwissenschaften. I think that's probably good, maybe. (laughs) Um, And realistically, it's quite interesting because these binturongs, they they produce a popcorn-like aroma, and it's their calling card. So some animals, like dogs, for example, will urinate on objects to say, this is mine, and tell everyone else. And, you know, dog urine smells not great. Binturong urine smells amazing. So do they just use it to intimidate out other creatures by just like 
how tasty it smells. Well, no, it's not just like a, a notification call for this is my territory and this is not. They also use it to attract mates because, hey, if you're going to produce a delicious smelling fragrance, it's going to attract friends. <laughs> Fair enough, definitely. And what they've uh, what they've shown is that basically they were looking for this mysterious thing that was causing them to produce a roasting popcorn-like aroma. They couldn't find it. They checked for compounds in the scent glands under the Mijerong's tail and nothing turned up when they looked there to try and find what was producing this smell. They're basically pouring all over this animal to try and figure out why, what on earth happens. So what do they find next? What do they try next? Well, they started to observe what it actually does when it urinates. So it, they, they pee in a squatting position, which soaks their feet and their tails in the process. And then they sort of... they drag their tails as they move along from tree to tree. They basically, they drag it around with them and it leaves a scent trail on all the branches behind them. So realistically, there was only one choice left and that was to fire up a chromatography mass spectrometer. <laughs> so what does a chromatography mass spectrometer do? Well, basically, if you watch any NCIS, then you'll know of major mass spec, um, but effectively analyzes the chemical compounds one by one and identified each individual thing present in a large sample. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they found 29 different chemical compounds in the animal's urine. And, and the only one that emanated from every sample, so they found it in all different kinds of samples, um, was uh, 2-acetyl-1-priorline or 2-AP. And that is actually the same compound that gives popcorn its tantalizing scent. So do they... Okay, so the obvious answer here then would just be that they eat popcorn, right? Like, or eat um, <laughs> just, like, corn kernels. No. And what's even more amazing about this is, like, where, where do they get this from? How, how do you make a cookie smell without cooking? And it's, um, well, they looked for a food source that would produce the 2AP. Uh, they, they couldn't find it. Even when they were, like, tightly controlling their diet in a zoo, mm -hmm. they searched through the, their food, their feedstock, the kibble they were giving them. And then they tried and cooked them to see if, even if they manually cooked their food, would it produce the same smell or the same chemicals? And it wouldn't happen. And they just, they just couldn't do it. So what they actually think is more likely is that the 2AP is produced um, in the urine when it comes into contact with bacteria and other microorganisms that live on its fur or in its gut. Mm -hmm. So then the bacteria makes the, makes the smell compounds as they break down um, similar to the way that you know bacteria in our armpits make smell when uh, they come in contact with sweat in our armpits or on our skin. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and like the and this would also explain the time release factor because the it's not necessarily in, instantaneously. It also explains why it keeps lasting long because if the the microbes are just processing the the leftover urine and producing more and more of the smell, it means why it could persist for so long. It's not because it's dying off. It's just because it keeps making more. Which is really good for things like bear cats because they're actually really solitary animals and they barely come into contact with each other. Yeah. So having like a long-lasting marker is really going to help out with communication. Well, definitely. I mean, it's basically like leaving a delicious-smelling fragrance trail to, to catch up with and otherwise it's going to be quite boring out there in uh, mm -hmm. the jungles. <laughs> so next time you have some popcorn, think of the mighty and tiny bear cat, the binturong, when you chow down on that delicious smelling popcorn because you share something in common with them. 
right in that moment. And maybe you could use that popcorn to communicate with your friends over long distances. Just don't go around peeing on trees. Yeah, that, that is not advisable. One of the most amazing abilities of the animal kingdom is the ability to navigate incredibly long distances for purposes of seasonal travel, to avoid the cold, to get to your mating grounds. And whether it be the large varieties of whales and dolphins that swim from the Arctic to warmer waters to breed, to the, the geese and the birds that fly great distances in tight formation, or the albatrosses which sail lonely across the oceans, guarding themselves in very intricate ways. Another animal, much smaller and less hardy than those that we just talked about, makes a similar journey. Over 2,000 miles from Canada and the United States all the way to Rio Grande in central Mexico. Well, that is a big distance if you're a butterfly. But that is exactly what the monarch butterfly does. Each and every year, their orange, black and white wings are turned southwards. They migrate towards warmer climes in Mexico. And they repeat this journey instinctively, generation after generation. And even as their numbers plummet due to the loss of their larval food source, the, the milkweed, they still manage to make the journey. And if you see these beautiful butterflies, it can be quite surprising to think that they managed to undertake such a long and difficult journey. How do they navigate? How do they know where to go? How do they even conceptualise of a place over 2,000 miles away? when they're that small. And researchers from the University of Washington have been studying these beautiful little butterflies and come to some conclusions about how they're managing to undertake this miraculous journey. Now, researchers led by Eli Schlizerman, who is an assistant professor at University of Washington, actually in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Electrical Engineering Department, work together with some fellows from the University of Michigan and the University of Massachusetts to model how the monarch's internal compass works because they actually have a genetically encoded compass that helps them determine the direction southwest that they should fly each fall. And their compass integrates two pieces of information the time of day and the sun position on the horizon. And that's how they find their southerly direction. Now, previously we knew about the monarch butterfly's ability to integrate the time of day and the sun's location, but they haven't really ever understood how it actually receives that signal and processes that inf information. Because you have to remember that a butterfly's brain is very small, which means there's not a lot of room and computational power for really complex analytics and mathematics. So that's where Eli Schlissman actually was applying his research. How do you actually get a signal to be processed and analysed and turned into useful information? What technique are they using? So... The monarch butterflies have really large and complex eyes, and these eyes are great for monitoring the sun's position in the eye, in the sky. But position alone is not sufficient to determine location. They they also need to know the time of day because you know when the sun is in a different position at each time of the day, you need to take that into account. Now, like humans, most animals have uh, an internal clock based on rhythmic expressions of key genes. So the genes themselves' behaviour is actually what defines the internal clock that they're running. 
Now, that also maintains a daily pattern of physiological and behavior. And in the monarch butterfly, this internal clock and the genes that are regulating that are centered in the antennae. And this information then travels via neurons straight into the brain. So, the collaborators in this study, such as Stephen Reppert from the University of Massachusetts, recorded the signals from the antennae nerves in the monarchs as they transmitted that clock information to the brain, as well as the light signals being passed from the neurons near their eyes directly into the brain. And based on that, they created a model that incorporates this information, how the antennae actually sends the information, and how the eyes send the information. So that from there, they could extrapolate out their own model of how the brain is actually processing those signals and then compare it to the real one. In their model, two neural mechanisms, one inhibitory and one excitatory, controlled signals from clock genes in the antenna. And the model used a similar position to determine the sun based on signals from the eyes. And using those two, uh, one this model, they're able to bake uh, basically a little, an algorithm, a little program, to help determine the location of Southwest. Now, when you actually build a model like that, they can actually also test hypotheses. So, so let's say the butterfly gets knocked off course. What they found is in their model that they wouldn't just make the shortest turn to get back on route. Uh, so they actually little built in a kind of a turning test, right? Which would say, well, are we going left or right and how that relates to getting back to the direction? So what that means is that if they build up like a separation point, a unique feature that they won't cross in order they're, they're turning back towards, get towards their goal direction. That's kind of like a limit. Now, we don't actually want to go that way. We want to go the other way. And based on that, if a monarch gets hit by a gust of wind or say an object in its path, it will turn whichever direction won't cross this uh, barrier, this separation point. In its. Now, they conducted experiments with monarchs at different times of day. And when they did that, they saw that in reality as well, they, they took really long, slow or meandering paths to turn around when they encounter an obstacle. And that's consistent with them having this kind of separation point, this barrier in terms of their internal processing that prevents them from just taking, obviously, the, the, the most efficient turn. But overall, um, it means that they can still make a, a, a turn back onto the get onto their course. So this is great because the researchers have developed their own model and come across some problems in making that model work and come up with a solution to it that actually mimics the solution that's being done inside the butterfly's brain. It also explains why they're simply able to reverse course and do the opposite when they need to get home from the Rio Grande back up to the United States and Canada. So the four neural mechanisms that transmit information about the sun and the clock's the internal clock and the sun's position. They just need to reverse direction and the model works exactly the same. This is great because it shows that nature often develops a really, really simple solution to a really complex problem. And by studying and analyzing that, we can learn how to make simple solutions for our own problems by mimicking nature. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we learned about tiny bear cats that produce something that smells like hot buttered popcorn and the wonderful monarch butterfly's incredible brain and signal processing to help it find its way home. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.